0: Now, from Hollywood, California, the horror capital of the world, the Boulay Brothers, Creatures of the Night.
2: Welcome to the tour, Bus Uglies. Today we are recording a special episode of the Boulet Brothers Creatures of the Night, and we are joining you as we are currently driving through the United Kingdom for the official Boulet Brothers Dragula Season 4 World Tour. And I'm actually really looking forward to this episode. We are going to be foregoing our
3: usual news updates this time, as we are not in the office this week at all. And so I'd like to go ahead and welcome our co-host and the general of our witch army to the show, the wicked, Miss Ian DeVogler. Ian, welcome.
1: Oh my God, call time was five minutes ago. Where are you? Oh my God, where are we? (laughs) (laughs) Who knows where we
2: are? It could be anywhere. It literally could be anywhere. (laughs) Truly. So we have a lot to talk about and I'm just going to jump right into it. Talking about touring and all that, I'm actually remembering that somebody asked on the last episode how we feel about meeting fans in person. And sort of what the protocol is for that. And I realized that a lot of people often ask this question. So maybe we could talk about it a little bit. Swan, let's start with you. Do you enjoy meeting people at meet and greets? And what tips do you have for people who might be doing this for the first time?
3: I hope people can really take these answers as heartfelt and earnest. I love the meet and greets. I sidestep all of the things that are expected of me and we just become accessible creatures out there on the floor and meet some fans that have a share of things that we both love because we love the show too. And hearing how the show might affect them or what role it may have played in their lives or how it inspired their art. Of course, I love to hear all those things and I like to do it as many times as I can. There are a few things, though, that I like to just kind of throw out there. I would say never apologize for how nervous you might be or how much expectation you're putting on the situation. Just breathe, relax like we're there to meet and kind of share in a moment. So don't be scared once your turn comes and you're standing there in front of us. And I don't know if this sounds cunty or not or bitchy. It's not meant to be. But a lot of times people want to pose for a photo. And of course, your natural instinct is to throw your arm around the person next to you. So let me give you a little bit of a piece of advice. Just because someone is dressed in drag and they're next to you doesn't mean it's necessarily consent to be all over them because there's a lot of illusion and a lot of magic that goes into building that image or that image, if you will. One of the things to look out for specifically is if someone, a drag artist, has their hair down because when you throw your arm around them, you'll kind of like pull their hair back and you'll notice the photo that clicks off seconds later where their chin is kind of pointed at the ceiling because you are inadvertently and unknowingly scalping them bald and ripping their wig from their head.
2: That's true. (laughs) That is a pet peeve for sure. And why we usually don't wear long wigs in a meet and greet. Yeah. I'll say too, I'll back you up on that. I love the meet and greets because like I've said before, I feel like it is almost like a family reunion for freaks and weirdos and people that really... Love our show. They're paying extra to come and meet you, and I'm happy to meet them. I think maybe you've heard rumors of drag artists not being the best in meet and greets. And I mean, I'm going to be controversial too and say that. I think maybe our show is a little different and what we do is a little different. It really resonates with people that are particularly fans of ours or the content we put out. They're not just like, I'm a fan of Wife Swap, so I'm just going to go and get a meet and greet with this person that I don't really like or I don't care that much about, or maybe I do, but they don't have any kind of special relationship to me. You know, we're connected to these people through the genre of things that we like, like horror or alternative culture or things like that. So I feel like there's already like a... Kindred spirit there. Yeah, right. shared DNA. And so maybe that's a little different. I don't know. I'm just guessing, but that's what I think. I can know? see that for sure. And maybe all the other drag queens are bitches. That could be the case too. <laughs> yeah, hey, I could see
3: that too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what do you think? Do you have any like uh, tips for people? Because you've run like so many meet and greets at this point. And sometimes I have to say you've done a great job because you've run some oh, meet and greets you. for like oh. hours at a time. Like, you are incredible, Like oh, yeah. You
3: know what? Let's give it up for Ian. Let's, let's oh. give Ian some love. Oh
0: my God. Bravo.
1: Oh. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. What do you think? Like, do you have any advice for people that come to meet and greets? Off the top of my head, I would say my biggest piece of advice for meet and greets is to take a breath. I think that people get really, really excited. Rightfully so. They're meeting artists that they look up to or that they feel a sense of kindredness with. But I think that oftentimes people will come to the meet and greets and they'll get so flustered or they'll stumble over their words. And unfortunately, because there are so many people, we do have to move things along a little bit. And I personally always try to make sure that I give the boulets or the other artists from the show space to interact with the fans because I think it's important. However, if you're just kind of like, uh, I don't know, I don't know what to say. The sand in the hourglass runs out very quickly. And I think that a lot of people sometimes walk away with like, oh, I wish that I would have had the courage to say this or, or to tell the bullies how much I love them. I'm like, oh, you should, because this is your moment, you know? And I know that you guys both love and respect those interactions. And I think that people should rightfully be afraid of their overlords. <laughs> they need to make some notes. <laughs> you don't
3: want that situation to slip through your fingers. And look, yeah. I can relate. I know it's something that I've dealt with my entire life. My beauty stuns people. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. I
2: mean, I would give people (laughs) this advice, which is we're not judging you. Like, If you're coming to meet and greet to see us, we're thankful that you're there. You probably paid extra to come and do it, and we appreciate that. So we're not looking at you and judging you. We're happy to meet you. Just I would say think of one sort of message because you don't have a lot of time even if you have two or three minutes, you really can only convey one message. So don't tell me your life story because there's no time for that. But try to give us like a brief message, right? Yeah, and do it when you're borderline sober because when you get too drunk,
3: you can convey no messages and everything comes across like, a hot mess that's like the only message that you're
2: going to convey so you know
3: maybe have one to like loosen up or enjoy the party but don't get too wasted
2: i want to admit and i will not name names but i did threaten someone at the last meet and greet i'm gonna go ahead and say (laughs) there was a drunk guy that came up to me i don't remember what he said but he said something very offensive and obnoxious and i think i told him if he didn't move (sighs) back i was gonna pick him up and throw him off the stage (laughs) Yes, I just smile yes. I just stand there and smile oh my god yeah. so don't say anything weird to us like that
1: unless you would like to learn to fly on the fly <laughs> hey you know we're, we're, we all we all develop new skills I will say one thing that I really love about meet and greets that is intrinsically a the three of us kind of thing is much like how the queen of England has hidden messages and codes to tell her guards hey I need to do whatever the boulets and I also have kind of a weird unspoken silent language of like what's happening it makes me feel a little bit like a superhero or like a sidekick (laughs) it's fun
3: yeah so the meet and greets now today they look a little different than they have in the past do you have any things that stand out or kind of like crazy memories from tours
2: before these times when things have gotten a little bigger and a little more glossy one of the things that our fans do that i actually enjoy is and they're afraid to ask sometimes they request us to choke them
1: oh yeah (laughs) and i love that (laughs) i actually think it makes for a
2: good picture when one of us is on one side and oh, one's totally. on the other. I think it looks great. Or my other favorite is when they ask us to step on their head. That's another good one. That <laughs> happened just, recently. That happened recently oh, and that is a cute. good one. And remember in San Francisco, that guy that was worshiping us, I
1: like that oh, too. Oh yeah. Worship right. is good always good Yeah.
3: <laughs> Some people really know how to greet us. Yeah. <laughs> so now I'll ask are there any horror stories from like me and Greet's past or like tours past
2: that come to mind since we're touring now? I would say there's a couple of times where I've put together a fabulous outfit because, you know, part of the meet and greet is, oh, I want to pull a new look and surprise people. And so we'll go back and get ready and we'll put on this giant Iron Man armor suit of (laughs) darkness. And then we come out and I'm like, oh, shit. This is like 5,000 degrees. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. You know, I just mm-hmm, didn't think of mm-hmm. like what this venue would be like or how hot it would be. Yeah. And literally, I can feel the beads of sweat building up on the fort. My contact, for some reason, starts bucking out the side. It, it ain't good. <laughs> yeah.
3: Your bed was made <laughs> at that point. There's no turning yeah. back. And now you just have to like die in it. Because
2: you can't go change <laughs> and come back either because they'll be no, like, no. And, uh, and everyone uh, has seen happened? you already. So
3: there's that moment. It's like, woo, you know, yeah. and forget it.
2: Just a little. Uh tequila, I think, is a good little drink before yeah, you do a it. Meet it lubricates and greet. the whole mechanism of a meet and greet. Yes. Yeah. What about you? Is there any horror stories for
3: you? Just like touring out large. And I think we've talked about the bus breaking down, the infamous <laughs> bus breaking down in Wales story like several times. From
2: the first time, it was not our first time touring the UK, but it was the first time we took some of the Dragula competitors. This is my memory of it. I was kind of in the middle somewhere and I know
3: like Vander and a few others were behind us Mm -hmm. and Drax to my right, Ian's to my left, the driver's in the front. It's three in the morning. We're literally driving through American Werewolf in London, landscape and it was just rumble, 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 sleep, sleep, bang. And yep, just on the side of the road, In the dark, double flat tire, no phone signal, nightmare. Mm -hmm. No way to
1: communicate with the outside world. We have a call time to meet
3: as well. We were racing to get to the ferry to bring us to Ireland, and we had to get there at a certain time, or it was basically going to throw everything off. And this goes on for hours, and, like, the sun is coming up, and we then discover, like, we're in, like a rolling pasture with sheep. Oh, that was the gag for me. That
2: was the gag. The gag for me was when the driver (gasps) thought he was going to change the tire and got under the car, and then the jack fell, and Mm -hmm. the car came down, and that's one of those moments. Cause I think it's happened maybe two or three times in the history of Dracula where I thought that our life had changed forever. Yeah. Oh, I was yeah. like, the driver is now dead. Like in my mind, I'm like, he's dead. And that's official.
1: In my mind, I'm like, his skull is crushed. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. Way. Yeah. I know that we talked yellow jackets to death in the last episode, but I will say retrospectively, that was a moment where I'm like, if we were all in yellow jackets, I know exactly how I would react to trauma because as soon as the bus shifted I closed my eyes. I just witnessed a man dying. I, yeah. Cannot, yeah. I, I cannot lift oh, this car man, over him. It's so scary. It's
2: interesting because like a lot of, of drag tours nowadays are really glammed up and people have their own trailers and gigantic buses and all this stuff. In the world that we came from back in the day before all that, I think it was more touring like rock and roll tours, right? It was yeah. not glamorous at all. You were in rock and roll clubs, just finding a place to get ready. Yeah. And it was, you're not on a big glamorous bus or anything like that. So it was kind of like, A little more like I think a band traveling, right? Absolutely. a little more roughing it. And I think we
3: were building the empire then too. So we were, you know, we were doing what we had to do to get where we were going.
2: Exactly. And I mean I I think it's interesting to know what it's like now versus then and know it both ways because you don't become spoiled. (laughs) So speaking of (laughs) then,
3: this is before even that. I think it was like our first time in Australia. And they're like, here's your lovely dressing room. Like, welcome to the club. And it was one of those, like, rock clubs, which I actually really love. Stank like beer, and, you know, you could fit, like, a couple hundred people in there, but the shows were, like, fucking electrified. So I'm like, this place is cool. I really love it. And then they're like, okay, let's go back to the green room. And we walk through the hallway and through a couple of doors, and I'm like, why are we stopping? Because there's, like, picnic benches. It's, like, one degree. It's, like, so freezing. Mm -hmm. And they're like... Well, you can get ready anywhere. All of this space is yours. And I'm like, I'm looking around. We're outside. There are pigeons flying around. There's like a little tin roof, but it really just covered a patio, which we were standing <laughs> on. And there were pigeons just flying around doing their business, like left and right, as we were trying to like get in full of drag and like get ready for the show that was happening inside. I was like, what? Is happening right now.
1: It was like a barn, I think, county fair kind of oh, looking totally. Thing. Yeah, very much with the strings of the triangle. sort yeah. of like a banners almost.
2: I mean, it had lights like that for sure, but it was a dressing room. But there was no roof. It, it was the weirdest. It was like, okay, welcome to the glamorous world of performing <laughs> in Australia. <laughs> but I don't think our next Australian tour is going to be quite like that. I don't. But think I so will either. never forget. And this is my personal joy from it. Seeing the look on Kimura Black's face, <laughs> who we were touring with, for what reason, I have no idea, it was the Blay Brothers with Kimura Black. Okay. So seeing her face when she walks and they said, yeah, this is where you get ready. I thought she was going to die. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> God.
1: It looks good kill. And I was
2: like, your first girl, have ah. fun.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the tour bus, ugly.
2: You know what? It didn't affect her. She went out there and slayed it. She did a great job. Yeah, she did. That was so fun interesting that's for sure makes for good stories today it sure does
3: all right well that's enough of that we're going to take a quick break and when we return we're going to be discussing a horror classic starring the one and only vincent price i'm talking about 1953's house of wax stay tuned
0: Attention, misfits, mutants, and outcasts. The Boulet Brothers want you to join the cult now by visiting BoulayBrothersDragula.com, where everything from the world of the Boulet Brothers can be found. Be sure to sign up for the newsletter for insider updates, learn more about upcoming projects, and access tons of Boulet Brothers and Boulet Brothers Dragula exclusive merchandise. Visit us now at BoulayBrothersDragula.com. Do it or die.
2: Welcome back, uglies, and welcome to this episode's Creature Feature Movie Review. For this episode, we've chosen to watch the horror classic House of Wax, directed by Andre de Toth and starring Vincent Price, Carolyn Jones, and a young Charles Bronson. It's the story of wax sculptor Henry Jared, who is horrified to learn that his business partner, Matthew, plans on torching their wax museum to collect on the insurance policy. Henry miraculously survives a fiery confrontation with Matthew, and re-emerges some years hence with a museum of his own. But when the appearance of Henry's new wax sculptures occurs at the same time that a number of corpses vanish from the city's morgue, art student Sue Allen begins suspecting wrongdoing. <laughs> so
1: this is a classic. Yes. And what do we all think? I think I'll start with mine because I think sometimes I have a tendency to not appreciate some of the classics. (laughs) I will say that I was genuinely pleasantly surprised by House of Wax. I really loved it and I didn't expect to. I thought that it had all the hallmarks of classic Hollywood film. It had great sets. It had beautiful score. It was very over the top. It was actually very campy. And genuinely, not that it's like the way we look at scares in a modern way. There were no jump scares, but it is really horrifying. The overall plot and everything that happens, horror, classic, for sure.
3: Yeah, I thought it was really fun. I loved House of Wax. I think something that it did, probably its biggest success, was that it achieved a sense of creepiness that was Mm. like very unfamiliar. I felt like I was watching something almost singular because I I haven't really seen a movie like that before. And it was very strange. Like there were no classic scares the way that we're trained to think about scares. And there was like that weird intermission, which I guess they used to do like back in the day, (laughs) which I thought was also very charming. I'm like, I live for an intermission. I'm like, I think we need to put up a big sign like that the next time we go on tour or something. But I thought there were a lot of visual interests and the story itself was very, Creepy, And I thought it was very fun to watch.
2: Yeah, I thought it was really interesting too. I thought it was... I mean, it wasn't scary in the sense of today's Mm -hmm. scary. But for the time, it was probably scary. And just the concept was interesting. It was kind of charming. I liked the message of it, that he was sort of into the beauty and history of it and didn't want to take the easy way out and go with a horror sort of wax museum. Yeah, But then ultimately, he's forced to do that. And it's even more gruesome than what an actual... Horror House would be like.
3: Yeah. There's a lot of esoteric lines in there and very strange lines. Vincent Price's character, Professor Henry Jared, but he's not actually a professor. I think they explained somewhere in the story that that was just a name that he kind of adopted through his mm-hmm. like professional career. Is a very eccentric artist. So you, you never know what's going to come out of this guy's mouth, which really kind of put me off. I'm like, "Wait, is he crazy? He's talking about he's reincarnated. He talks mm-hmm. to his models, his Marie Antoinette like speaks to him." His
1: creations have voices and spirits, so I'm like, this is so odd. He's also a little duplicitous, and he's, like, double dealing. I remember there's the scene where, I believe it's Sue, says, oh, well, this looks just like my friend who died. Well, how could that be? And he just rolls up and is like, oh, well, you see, I love realism. And I'm like, ooh, like realism, <laughs> like it's a dead body. <laughs> I felt like
2: once they figured out he was the murderer, They really didn't have to go after him. All they should have done was taken a quick video, Snapchat of him getting out of the wheelchair and then put it
1: on Twitter. Oh. It would have been really over. It would have been Mm -hmm. over. Mm -hmm. I mean, girl, like the girls on Twitter in 1953 were crazy. Girl, cancel culture. (laughs) Speaking of the lines of the film, I was locked in on the character of, I believe her name was Kathy. She's the blonde who ends up dying because. Her dialogue is campy in a way that I was shocked at some of the things that came out of her mouth. Like, specifically, and I wrote these down in my notes, which, by the way, I'll have to read you some of my notes because they're hysterical for this (laughs) one, if I do say so myself. But she's at brunch with the guy who burns down the original wax museum. And the other guy's like, oh, well you know, I, I cash on in the insurance policy and done it. And always, but it, it, these things take time. And she goes, ah, oh, they always want a corpse. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. girl, what? And then later also Vincent Price's character has this really like homoerotic line later, which I think there's a lot of homoeroticism in the movie, but he turns to his assistant, not Igor, who I love, but Scott. And he goes, oh, what I wouldn't give to have those fingers of yours. And I'm like,
3: mom, there's no homosexual undertones in this. You're just a pervert.
2: Speaking of the actress, you're talking about Carolyn Jones who played Morticia in the original Adams family oh, TV show classic. played this role. in what Kathy. a different
1: character. Unbelievable. <laughs> I would have never guessed in a million <laughs> Completely years. Completely unrecognizable. The only way that I knew it is Amazon prime does this thing where if you pause it, they call it like the X-ray and it'll yeah. show you all the characters from the scene and who the actors are who play them. And I saw her, I was like, Oh my God, I would have never guessed. I neither stopped.
3: We all know Morticia's attitude is so relaxed and sophisticated and dark. And this character of Kathy Gray, she kind of talks like this, and she's a little bit of tawdry, and she's a little bit of a skeezer, and she's wearing one earring, which I found so fashionable. It turns out to be a very kind of pivotal plot point, too, but we're watching Mm -hmm. the movie, and in her first scene, first of all, she's being corseted, and she has a waistline, like, smaller than Sigourney Beavers.
1: oh like, and she oh, she goes if you don't watch your waistline no man will like <laughs> oh my god and she's got character. this big
3: dangly jeweled earring in one ear and i even said it i'm like wow that is kind of like unexpectedly fashionable for like the mid-50s mm-hmm. it's really cool
2: well similarly charles bronson who plays this very non-traditional role for what we normally expect him to be he's always this kind of like tough guy in these crime movies like batman without the mouse, yeah. right yeah. yeah
3: and his character igor in this is a deaf mute so he doesn't even have one line but I think it's testament to the effect of his presence on film. Yeah. He's like mm-hmm. a major character.
1: Yeah. I actually, I wrote down, too, that I loved the character of Igor. Because from first interaction with him, oh, this is my assistant. He's mute. His name is Igor. And I'm like, okay, well, ding, 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 like Frankenstein, mad scientist vibes, like you have Igor. And I also, I love, I don't know if it was a choice for the way that the lighting is or just because he is also... I guess applying makeup which we later learn is kind of like touching up the wax on Vincent Price's face but he also has almost kind of like unblended stage makeup oh for sure like looks very very from the back of the theater which I was like oh I love a queen it's her
3: contour honey
1: (laughs) (laughs) mama bricks I do think it was
2: pretty gruesome Sue tied down with the wax about the and then he gave her the needle injection oh Oh, yeah there was such
3: a huge successful effect to that like the ramping tension of that scene Because upstairs, Igor was, like, attacking the boyfriend and Mm -hmm. trying to behead him. And then the wax was just continuously getting hotter and hotter. And she's clawing at the inside of the case. It was the clawing for me. Like, you could see the wax curling around her fingernails. Like, oh, this is really Really impactful. Tons of tension built. I don't mean to put on the brakes here, but I need to focus on Sue Allen's name. Because every time they said Sue Allen, I was expecting Sue Allen to walk in from Dallas, like, over
2: and over. (laughs) Wow. Oh, my God. So how do we feel like the movie held up overall?
3: there was a couple of things here, and I think Ian said it a few minutes ago. The character of Professor Jared is like kind of part mad scientist and part Phantom of the Opera and Mm -hmm. had like this new hybrid of not a very celebrated horror icon, but when you see his melt face and his stalker outfit, I mean, Mm -hmm. that
1: is genuinely scary. Oh, very Gabriel from Malignant Vibes. (laughs) It holds up for sure. Yeah, I thought so too. And one scene that I thought really stood the test of time, held up, not unlike wax, is the scene where the wax museum burns down at the beginning of the film. I read somewhere that the set actually caught on fire and they had to send in firefighters to put out the fire, but that the director was like, just keep filming because the wax figures are already burning and we can't recreate them, which is how we get those really prolonged shots of the wax melting and their eyes falling out. I was like, this is i mean this is scary now like if you were some girl going to the sock hop in 1950s mama you would be gooped forever smelling salts too for real oh yes god okay i think this movie had three women fainting on camera i was like that's a record (laughs) i think
2: this would be a really fun movie to remake Because I think the story and the plot is there, you know, and I think it's been done a few times, Yeah, there was like the 2009 House of Wax with Paris Hilton that you've talked about.
1: Yeah, I think it was 2000, was it 2009? I thought it was maybe 2003, but regardless, I saw that one when I was a kid, so I knew that the gag was gonna be like, oh, it's their corpses or whatever, but- It was so cool to see the inspiration as the original, which actually made me think, I was like, okay, wait a minute. Is the 2003 House of Wax actually pretty
2: good? Well, the 2003 House of Wax is a remake of another movie called Mystery of the Wax Museum it's more akin to that oh, okay. and the one that we watched is kind of a remake but it's not the same story I mm, guess interesting. and then there's the other movie The Mill of the Stone Women which we yes. watched a little bit of That's which is actually one. really scary and I want to finish it
3: yeah no, it had such a mood. It was very menacing right from the start, but we didn't really get very far. But I'm like, this movie has like a lot of potential. I guess sculptors can be scary. I don't know. There's something that... <laughs> hey, sculptors are scary, Sculptors mama. are scary too. They are. No, there was there's something that happened in House of Wax that I kind of really liked, which was Professor Jared's sensibility about his own work distinctively changed right in the middle of the movie. And you actually learn once he experienced his own personal horror which was this wax museum that he loved and his partner, they were trying to make it succeed in the beginning of the film. And it was all based in his love of beauty and history. And he really poured himself into that literally like wax. <laughs> and then his partner just says, Hey, I'm going to burn this place to the ground and they get into this huge fight. And you see some of the effects right there in that fight, because this film was filmed for 3d. Uh, right. And there's like, there's objects being thrown at the camera. And I was like, not aware that it was filmed for 3d at first. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, wait a minute. Did that, Was that a mistake? Why did they show that thing just almost hit the cameraman? But this was one of the 3D gags back in like 1953 or whatever it was when this was filmed. But then when Professor Jared sort of miraculously shows up time later and is like rediscovered to be opening up a new wax museum, his sensibility has completely changed. And he says something like, he wants to depict crimes of violence represented in wax reproduced while they are still fresh in the public eye. And his, yeah. And his benefactor asked like, Oh, have you forgotten about beauty? You know, are you pouring yourself into this like gag and just trying to please the masses? And I really just kind of got that message of after his personal horror, he just leaned in and wanted to share horror and put it in front of everyone. I don't know. I felt like that was very Dracula of her. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> I will say, speaking of Professor Henry Jared and of Vincent Price, I do want to share a little anecdote that happened uh, as I was watching the film. So I'm like maybe 10 minutes in and Drac calls me and we're talking about work stuff. He's like, oh, well, are you watching House of Wax? I was like, yes. And girl, no one told me that Miss Vincent Price was out here looking snacky. Uh, and she goes, I don't want to spoil it for you, but I feel like you're going to really like him in like 30 minutes. And I was like, OK, <laughs> cut to 30 minutes later, she burned to hell. And like Just like is like crazy. And I was like, Drac was right. Drac was totally right. I was like, I'm sure I've seen one
2: of Ian's boyfriends limping down the sidewalk like a goon. or after the mouth face.
1: After, of course. After the melt face, it's like, you know, if you squint a little bit. But no, I literally wrote in my notes, girl, what? Vincent Price in the wheelchair looking fresh and fine? Ooh, I was gagged. Oh, my God. Put me in the wax museum, mama.
2: I think that he was scary. Once he was transformed, I mean, I I thought it was scary picturing him, the way his physicality was, his movements. I mean, it was
1: very intimidating, I would say. For sure. I mean, who knows how much of this is just... PR spin or just trying to generate buzz of the movie but I read that Vincent Price was doing an interview and he talked about how literally executives on the lot for the film were afraid to look at him and he was basically banned from really yeah banned from the cafeteria he wasn't allowed like in public because he was so scary looking which I believe it's like he looked good I hope to also figure out how to make a <laughs> wax
2: face that I can put over my face that will move as I move. You know what I mean? Oh, so you yeah. not know. It'll make drag so much easier. I think so too. That's my goal for season five. <laughs>
3: but you don't want it to be able to be shattered so effectively the mm-hmm. way the be way. It kind of
2: awesome though if it was in the middle of judgment you get <laughs> oh, that yeah. and it cracks and you're Talk just about like... about yeah. drags had a face crack moment. <laughs> the face crack from hell. You have like but a, honestly, a weird that gag, skull like Skeletor face underneath of it. That
3: face crack gag. I had not seen the remake. I didn't see the 2000 three house of wax i did not know what was coming and when she slapped his face and it just shattered to reveal that crazy melt face i was literally like oh out of my seat
1: like out of my seat gagging yeah I knew it was coming and I still gagged. I thought it was really well done. And of course for the fifties, I feel like it 100% succeeded because then they had the melt face, as we're lovingly referring to it as yeah. underneath. I was like, it was this so is, good. Yeah. like Genuinely. Again, if you were on your way home from the sock hop, you would remember that shit in the dark of the night.
3: There is a lot to appreciate from house of wax. If you've never seen it, you absolutely should. I think it's a classic seeing Vincent price in his heyday is also kind of like an experience. Looking very snacky, if you will. Um, (laughs) I think there's a lot of tricks of the camera, like the film world that you could appreciate, the 3D elements. Certainly like the cultural references, it's kind of strange to see what people would put in a movie in the 50s. But one of the things I thought they did very successfully too, right from the very first shot, is this whole play of shadows. It was like ropes and shadows for some reason, like over and over and over. Oh, yeah. The first time I noticed it was you see the silhouette of a woman with a knife. Exactly. It's like the opening scene. And it's sort of like what's cast on the wall isn't exactly what's cast right in front of you. And I think that's reflected in the wax museum. It's reflected in the professor's reincarnation, his second face. It's what's happening for the public and also what's happening like a mad scientist in the creepy basement. It's sort of like repeated over and over again.
1: <laughs> totally. And you just actually reminded me, I love that she gets burned to hell and not only develops a new Dragula sensibility about her art, but also develops a real love for stunt queenery when she murders her friend, Matt, and then hangs his body so that the like housekeeper can see it. I was like, Oh, wow. You truly, truly love a gag. Totally. And I think before we wrap up the House of Wax and all of its glory, I wanted to point
3: out one more thing. Because there was something that I recognized in this movie that really brought me back to a couple of episodes ago when we did Nightmare Alley. And it was the way that they treated alcohol and alcoholism in reference to the geek. So we knew like what a powerful tool of almost like uh, coercion. Mm -hmm. Alcohol was then, And I just kind of found it interesting because I think addiction and alcoholism is something that a lot of people face. And if you don't face it personally, maybe family members or loved ones face it. And I personally have an intimate relationship with it because people that I love face that kind of challenge. And when they put the alcohol in front of one of Professor Jared's cronies and they're tempting him like, you're not going to be able to resist. Mm -hmm. Like, like, Mm -hmm. tell us where it is. Tell us what he's been doing. And it triggered me because I'm like the way that we treat addictions and stuff today, I think is like much more sensitive to like mental illnesses. And back then it was almost like a triggering gimmick. Mm -hmm. Did
1: you pick up on that at all? A little bit. I thought that that scene definitely felt manipulative in a scary way. I look more on the way that the police basically just found this guy's trigger and we're like, we're just going to pick away at you. Like, it doesn't matter how we treat you. It was almost just kind of like a, a disregard for his mental health, sanity, anything.
2: I don't yeah. know. I think you guys are wrong. I usually do that with drink tickets at the club. Oh my <laughs> God. You're not <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> you are not right. <laughs> to all the performers and go-go dancers. Oh my God. Well, maybe one last thing I do love. This film really speaks to part of my childhood too. We'd go to like the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum and you make the wax hands but I never realized that the shape they make you put your hand in is like the fisting shape so it can slide out of the wax. So this house of wax is different than the house of wax When given the opportunity, she'll go right there every
2: time. (laughs) The best part is that she's at home writing her notes and she's like, I'm gonna squeeze this I'm one in. Say it. She I'm she not, writes wait, it down. Wait, and not prepares. squeeze this one in. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Two-headed <laughs> Leviathan. What I'm saying is that she sits home and writes these things out uh, and figures out how she can sneak them in. Jesus Christ. And gross. you know what? Good for you. <laughs>
3: <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's all the time we have for this episode's creature feature movie review. We are going to take a quick break. calling all misfits, mutants and outcasts. The Boulay Brothers Dragula Season 4 US Tour will be terrorizing a city near you this spring, featuring the Boulay Brothers and the top 4 monsters of Season 4. Tickets and VIP upgrades are available and going fast. So if you'd like the chance to experience the Dragula show live, get your tickets now at dragulalive.com before they're all gone. <laughs>
2: And now it's time to
3: change the mood a little and bring the lights down as we prepare for this episode's haunting of history. For this section of the show, we like to dig up a real-life, documented supernatural happening and give listeners an abridged history of the terrifying event. We encourage you to turn off the lights, find a dark, quiet place to relax in, and prepare for a journey into the unknown.
2: When nine-year-old Mark Taylor's father took him to the Pike Amusement Park in Long Beach, California, he had no idea that his experiences that day would inspire him to create one of the 1980s most iconic cartoon villains, the skull-faced Skeletor. It was at the California-based park that Mark entered the Laugh in the Dark haunted attraction, and upon entering, he knew something was amiss. He claims that as he walked through the haunt, The smell of death grew stronger and stronger, and a sense of uneasiness fell over him. As he neared the middle of the maze, his eyes fixated on a prop mannequin that was hanging from an Old West style gallows. The prop appeared to be an old beat up looking figure that was covered in a waxy paint and that bore the face of a mummified skeleton. Between the smell of death and the eerie feeling that Mark felt from looking at the prop's face, he became convinced that the figure was in fact real and the image of the figure was forever burned into his mind. Mark would grow up to become an artist and toy designer who was responsible for creating the Masters of the Universe characters, including He-Man's primary adversary, Skeletor. While Mark credits the Funhouse figure as his main inspiration for the villain, The real story of the funhouse prop was more sinister than even Skeletor himself. Shortly after Mark's visit to the Pike Amusement Park in 1976, a Hollywood production company rented the location to shoot an episode of the Six Million Dollar Man TV series. It was during this shoot that a prop master decided to move the hanging mannequin prop from inside the Laugh in the Dark maze, which led to a rather grisly discovery. While moving the prop, the arm broke off to reveal what appeared to be human bones and dried flesh underneath. The police were called and the prop was taken to the Los Angeles coroner's office where it was discovered that the prop was an actual human corpse that had been covered in wax, painted over, and mummified over time. Upon completion of an autopsy, the coroner further discovered that the body was that of a man that had been killed by a gunshot wound in the year 1911. As police began to track the history of the corpse backwards, a rather long and horrifying history would be revealed. The body was identified as that of Elmer McCurdy, a bank and train robber who was born in 1880 and shot and killed at the age of 31. After his death, his body was unclaimed and the local undertaker embalmed the corpse with an arsenic-based embalming fluid that was said to have extreme preserving qualities and stored it in the back room of the funeral home. Eventually, the undertaker began charging people to come in and see the body and he created an attraction around it, calling it the Bandit Who Wouldn't Give Up. The body became a popular attraction and it eventually drew the attention of carnival promoters who managed to purchase it from the undertaker. McCurdy's corpse was then renamed the outlaw who would never be captured alive and became an attraction in the Patterson Traveling Circus. Years later in 1922, The body was then sold to promoter Louis Sonny, who used the corpse in his traveling circus of crime until 1933, when it was rented by film director Dwayne Esper. Esper used McCurdy's now-mummified corpse to promote his exploitation film, Narcotic. The corpse was placed in the lobby of movie theaters with a placard that advertised it as that of a dead dope fiend who the director claimed to have shot and killed himself. After Louis Sonny died in 1949, the corpse was stored in a storage unit until 1967, when Louis's son, Dan Sonny, rented the body out as a prop for the horror film, She-Freak. Shortly after, Dan then sold the body, along with other wax figures and horror prop collectibles, to Spoonie Singh, the then owner of the Hollywood Wax Museum. The corpse was then displayed in various locations over the years and eventually changed hands a few more times. Each time the body was passed through to new owners, less and less became known about it and eventually even the fact that it was a petrified body and not a wax figure was lost. Many considered it nothing more than a forgotten wax house mannequin and it ultimately ended up hanging in the aforementioned Laugh House Haunt in Long Beach, California. After its rediscovery as a human corpse, the body of Elmer McCurdy would finally be given a proper burial in 1977 at the Boot Hill section of the Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma. To make sure that McCurdy's now infamous body would not be stolen, two feet of concrete was poured over the casket, ensuring that the body would never be exploited as a prop to be viewed by the public ever again.
3: That's it for this episode of the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night. Thank you all for joining us and we hope to see each of you in person over the next few months at one of our stops for the Boulay Brothers Dracula World Tour. We'll see you next time. Uglies. Uh, the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night is a Dread Central production hosted by the Boulay Brothers with their co-host and producer, Ian DeVogler. Engineered and mixed by Carlos Bueno with music by Neuron Spectrum.